Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. And now, a word about the sponsor of our podcast, Anchor. Hi, welcome back to this week's episode of That Anthro Podcast. If you're new here, my name is Gabby Campbell, and I'm a third-year undergraduate anthropology major at UC Santa Barbara. And every week, I interview people on my podcast. So welcome. If you're a returning listener, welcome. Thank you for supporting the podcast. Today, we have a very exciting guest, definitely something different than um, content I've produced in the past, but I'm really excited about it because that anthro podcast was truly founded to talk about anthropology, and that means any type of anthropology. So in this case, this week, we have Matt Arts, who's a business anthropologist, on the podcast to talk to us about all things business anthropology, some of the businesses that he has founded. He is the founder and career coach at Anthro2UX. He is the founder and principal researcher at Azimuth Labs and is also the head of product and experience at Cloud Shadow Consulting. He also has had the honor to do a TEDx talk, so I'm really excited for you guys to listen to him talk today. He definitely has some interesting information about DNA tests, about user experience. I hope you'll enjoy. But before we hop into the episode, I wanted to let you guys know about um, a book that I read over this Christmas vacation. I am on Christmas break from school right now, which has been very good to reset. Um, So it is Unnatural Exposure by Patricia Cornwell. I have recommended Patricia Cornwell books before. I will do it again because she is an amazing writer. I could not put this book down. Like, no joke, I had to stop myself. It's great. It has a great storyline, lots of friends and the corner stuff like mixed in there. But I would definitely recommend it, especially if you're bored and you want a thriller, like mystery, forensic novel to like keep you interested. I know I sometimes can get bored reading books. Could not put this down and down. And the last thing I wanted to say before we hop into the podcast is that there will be no new episode next week. I am taking the first week of classes off from the podcast so that I can get back into the groove. I'm also starting work again. Anyway, um, so there will be no episode on January 6th, but I will be back with a brand new episode on January 13th. So without further ado, let's hear from Matt Arts. Welcome to that Anthro podcast. I'm super excited to have you here to talk with me today, especially because your area of study and work is something that I am completely unversed in. And I think that'll actually pretty be pretty cool for our listeners because hopefully um, we will be able to kind of break down your work and what you're doing in the anthropological community in a digestible way for our listeners. 
So um, you have a bit of an untraditional background when it comes to anthropology. And in fact, you hold a BS in biotechnology and an MBA in finance and investment management information. So I think a good place to start is what ended up inspiring you after getting those degrees to go back and get a master's of science in applied anthropology and then begin the work you do now as a business anthropologist. Sure. Yeah, well, thanks um, first off you know, for having me, Gabby. And it's, it's nice to be here. I'm glad that you started this. Um, I think the more podcasts we have out there on anthropology, the better and in, in general, right? It's a great way to learn, great way to connect with people. So thanks, appreciate it. Um, so yeah, you know, my background's a little bit different because I didn't start in anthropology. I came back to anthropology later. And the reason I did that was I was working in tech. I pretty much worked in tech my whole life in one form or another since late high school. And I was realizing about the time that the iPhone had come out that the products that we were building at the time weren't very effective. Uh, they, you know, they looked aesthetically pleasing. They, you know, they, they checked off all those kind of boxes, but they weren't working great in the terms of having a return on investment. So I was, you know, looking around trying to figure out what could I do. And you know, research was an obvious um, thing to sort of plug into this, like as a, as a process. We didn't have a research component in what I was doing at that point. So when I realized that there was really a tech sector, you know, that was my interest. Going down that path, I eventually landed on anthropology, and there's a slight backstory to that because I had already, um, though I never took uh, an anthropology course as an undergrad, I had first come across anthropology when I was down in Nicaragua doing some primate research, and a primatologist I was studying under, and I did this when I was in my biotech program, so the primatologist I was studying under was looking at the books that I brought with me on the trip and asked me, you know, are you studying anthropology, and I wasn't, and we got talking, and, you know, it, it sort of clicked. And so ever since then, I actually had an interest in studying anthropology. But then once I realized that there is a concept of business anthropology and design anthropology and, you know, whether those terms are, whether one is nested on the other or not is something that's debated in, you know, in the space. But once I realized that, like, there's people who are applying anthropological, you know, this, this body of knowledge and, and the skills to this space that I was in, it, that sort of really clicked for me and made me want to go down that path. And then I enrolled in the University of North Texas program, which is an applied program that particularly focuses on, I mean, you could do like medical anthropology, you could do a number of things, but I focus on business tech and design. That's interesting. So how did your, um, how did you kind of formulate your thesis? So my thesis was, so well, being an applied, an applied program, right? You need to go out there and do something for a customer ultimately that will mimic a real world business project. And so I worked with a uh, consumer genetics platform. And what I was doing was looking at that platform from a product management and user experience perspective. And uh, today, that's the field that I work in. So I'm the head of product and experience. So basically, I'm in charge of researching, designing, and leading the process to build software applications. And so that's how it all relates. And so my applied project was really just that. It was me doing the kind of work, in fact, I was already doing while I was in graduate school, um, but applying it for the sake of this and for this project. And now, what does that really look like? Basically means that, you know, you're going to go out, you're going to conduct research with you know, first with stakeholders to learn kind of like the needs of the organization, then of course with users, non-users, and try to come up with a number of recommendations that will help to improve that product ultimately and, you know, set a vision for it, a product vision, a product strategy. 
And you know, the end goal of that in the case of a business context is of course that they, you know, the business wants to get something out of it, you know, which is customers, revenue, so on and so forth. But as anthropologists, you know, we are also interested in making sure, you know, things are, uh, you know, appropriately sort of taking care of customers. So while I made product recommendations in my thesis, portion of my thesis was also focused on making like sort of ethical recommendations of how this product should be built so that, you know, you're not taking advantage of, of any potential customers and not that, that my client was, however, you know, that happens in the consumer genetic industry and, um, and in many industries, right? So um, it's, it's, yes, we work in business or like my project was in business and I work in business, but it's also an opportunity, I think, for anthropologists um, to contribute to making sure that we're building things the right way, which is a really unique place to be. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear kind of the role of ethics in um, that application. I mean, you know, lots of times we hear about ethics of cultural anthropologists going into a community or um, ethics of repatriating remains, et cetera. But it's, it's really interesting to kind of hear how that does play into the consumer experience. Um, so how do you feel like your experiences from other areas of study have kind of transferred over into your work now? And does it maybe make you approach projects or challenges in new uh, ways? Yeah, so it's a great question. So I have almost always tried to stack my experiences. Um, and uh, so my original undergrad is in computer information systems. And that program that I chose was, is, was in a business uh, program ultimately. So I was focused on computer information systems, but it was within a business department because I was always interested in really managing technology more than say being, uh, being a software engineer or, or even being like a network engineer, whatever it may be. Right? I was always much more interested in how do we apply technology within businesses, within society, and how do we manage it? So I did that first. And then when I was in that program, this biotech program happened to pop up in my in my school, and I added that on as a second major. I was interested in actors, I was interested in science, and so I figured it'd be a great place to apply technology, like within that sector. I actually never directly went into working in the health sector. Life happened, and you know, one thing after another. But I have always maintained that interest, and I'll, I'll connect it back to that in just a second. But so, what I did kind of do, though I wasn't directly working for a co corporation, I when I was in my undergraduate, at the end of my undergraduate program, I entered a business competition because I took my senior uh, research, which was uh, in biotech, which was to separate DNA, so gel electrophoresis, right? So I basically cut the time in half that takes to run it. reason I did that was I was sort of sick of waiting around in, my, in our labs, wasting an hour while the gel was, you know, while, while the process was running. So I basically, you know, came up with a process to cut the time in half. I then spun that into a business competition, placed second in that business competition, started a company and filed a pending patent on it. I ended up dropping that patent and just sort of taking the rest of the resources and, and then funding essentially my tech company that I started after that. And then I, and I did that because it was kind of clear to me that I wasn't going to compete with like Fisher Scientific and, you know, and, and those kind of companies, right? So, um, so I spun that into this tech company and that's what sort of has led me down this path. Now, fast forward, and as I came out of my anthropology degree, I essentially used all of that knowledge previously to weave it back into my project. So I was studying consumer genetics. And so, you know, that then became, you know, the, the, the technology piece, the biotechnology piece all naturally lent itself to that. But also, you know, to, to the graduate degrees that you asked about, 
or mentioned in the beginning. So I think all of this connects because, you know, I'm working in tech. So all that that's useful. The biotech piece connects because scientific method is always going to help us solve problems in an interesting way. And then the finance piece is relevant because no matter what you do in business, you know, it all comes down to revenue, older, you know, to finances ultimately. And so having an understanding of, you know, just general sort of corporate finance is very, very useful. And I also had studied management information systems at the graduate level, which was sort of an extension of the undergrad computer information systems program. So all of that obviously relates. So to me, I've tried to tie it all together into a social, like a sort of socially conscious you know, business approach to building products and services today. It's very interesting. So you have founded two consulting companies and um, the first one is called Anthro2UX. So I was hoping you could explain to both me and the listeners what UX is and then what your consulting company strives to accomplish because I'm going to be honest, even in my research, I wasn't fully understanding what the user, kind of what the work you do in user experience is, but I'm super glad that, you know, I get to talk to you live and you can explain it to me right now. So, sure. yeah. So, so Anthro to UX is essentially a career coaching service that's trying to, uh, that's helping anthropologists go from academia into UX, which is user experience. The reason for starting that is because people reach out to me on LinkedIn all the time asking, you know, how can I do this, right? How, you know, any tips, you know, what, how, what should my resume look like? What should a portfolio look like? Just, you know, for informational interviews. So, you know, I spun up like a, a small, just sort of side hustle type business just to help people out at an affordable rate, you know, and just to kind of help them get there and cover, you know, some cost to doing it. And um, what UX is, is so user experience is the, the discipline that is in tech today that is more or less in charge of researching and designing the digital products. So the goal is, you know, to, to sort of define it with the, with its own name, right, is to create better experiences. And that's like a little bit of making sure that, you know, the product has utility, making sure that it's, you know, or that it's usable, you might say, and basically kind of combining those aspects to, to ideally produce something that is, you know, some people say delightful almost, right? So maybe if you use, you know, like Headspace, the meditation app, or if you view, you know, okay, so, you know, so if, if you view something like that, you know, it's fun, right? You, there's, there's moments that make you smile. Right? Yeah. So that's a very nice user experience as opposed to, um, you know, any number of products that if you can't carry out the task that you're trying to do mm. and you find it frustrating, right? So our goal is to conduct research with people which in the tech industry is called users, which obviously there's some debate around, right? That's not obviously a very good way to think about other you know, people. Um, but so we conduct research with people to understand their needs, their wants, and then we reframe that into to product recommendations, which leads to designs, you know, which basically leads to an engineering team building or implementing those designs until you ship the product. Wow, that's... That's so interesting. That's definitely um, a new area to me and a new area of uh, business. So on the same thread, you also founded Azimuth Labs, which is a business anthropology consulting company. And so how does that differ from your work with Anthro2UX? So Azimuth Labs is, um, whereas, whereas Anthro2UX is me coaching typically students who are early to mid-career anthropologists to get into user experience. Azimuth 
Labs is very much more about me doing that work for organizations, right? So I'm taking all of my UX product management strategy experience and bundling it up and offering those services to other organizations that need them. So, you know, from you know, working with health products to working with language schools, you know, I touch a number of things, but basically it's me providing business services to help other organizations innovate products and services. Great. Um, and then something that I'm really excited to talk to you about is your TED Talk, because I think, you know, TED Talks have become this in, in the past, what, like 20 years, this real iconic and prestigious way to publicly disseminate and present research. So I was curious if that was kind of a goal for you or was it something that kind of just did the opportunity present itself to do that TED Talk? So to be frank, you know, I've watched TED Talks for a very long time at this point. I remember in the very early days of like Netflix actually getting them like on DVD and like being very interested. And so I have liked Ted and followed Ted for quite some time and had always wanted, you know, have always thought about doing it. But of course I didn't like have research to present. You know, I didn't feel I had anything compelling and maybe I did, maybe I didn't, but at the time I didn't feel that yeah. way. And so when um, this opportunity popped up, you know, I, I viewed it as, as a way to sort of expand on my thesis work because one of the other things of anthropology that I'm interested in is like maybe we might call it public anthropology, you know, very much like what you're doing at the podcast, mm -hmm. you know, is trying to get the message out there uh, to a wider audience. And so, um, you know, early on in the history of U.S. anthropology, you know, Margaret Mead and, you know, a number of others were fantastic at it, but that seemed to kind of fall by the wayside, you know, a bit. And, you know, I think like podcasts like this and other initiatives are bringing that back, but we sort of seem, in my opinion, have like a branding issue with in an anthropology, right? People don't like always respect anthropologists maybe as much as we would like them to or as much as yeah. we think they should, as opposed to psychologists or behavioral economic you know, or economists, right? They, you know, we don't have like quite the, the sexy appeal that some of these other industries do, some of these other professions do. And so... I'm very much interested in sort of getting the message out there. So for me, the TED Talk was one a way to get out a message about consumer genetics that I thought was important, which was like the ethical considerations, which mm -hmm. we can talk about if you're interested. But also it was a means of participating in a more of a public anthropology kind of a approach. And I think TED's an excellent way to do that. I know there's some people who think that TED is kind of like, you know, watered down or it's too scripted in a way. And it's, you know, there's a negative some people have a negative view of it, but to me, you know, when you just look at how many people watch TED Talks, you know, it's a fantastic way to not only spread your research, but also, you know, your profession and the value of anthropology. Yeah, it's a great tool and it's a great platform that so many have been able, I think it's even just part of being, being a part of the whole idea of that you did a TED Talk and you're part of that community and, you know, it, it's really fascinating and um, important to be able to, like you say, cross that bridge to from the science or the business into the public and getting it into the public eye. Because I know like even 
like I did a, a presentation on anthropology at my old middle school and <laughs> I had to, you know, the first thing I had to clarify was no, no, I don't work with dinosaur bones <laughs> because yeah, it's, I get that one a lot. And it's just like making, you know, there are, and I do understand because there are so many niches within anthropology and, you know, that's what I like to explore on the podcast is all of the different things under the, um, the giant umbrella that is anthropology. But, uh, you know, that TED talk, and I will make sure to have it linked in the description for our listeners. And um, so, yeah, I want to dive into the subject matter of that, which was consumer genetics and some of the big issues surrounding DNA tests, like um, Ancestry.com or 23andMe, you know, those like, consumer ones that you buy. So why don't you kind of break down uh, some of those main points, but we'll also, again, if anyone wants to check out the full TED talk, it'll be linked. Yeah, well, yeah, thanks for that. And, um, you know, one thing I should point out, you know, we, we oftentimes casually say TED, but of course I was on the TEDx stage, not TED, you know, not the big TED, um, which I just think is, uh, you know, fair to represent it that way. Um, you know, being on the big stage of TED would be amazing. Um, you know, it's maybe a, a dream, you know, maybe something for the I was going to say but, one day. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so I, you know, I participated in TEDx Scranton and, uh, TEDx Scranton Women is actually just coming up or was maybe just a week ago or so or is around this time, which there's some really nice speakers that are going to be at. But nonetheless, so the talk was again, an extension of my my UNT thesis research, um, but not on not so much like anything product management or user experience related. It was really the lessons learned from that that I thought consumers needed to know. And you know, a lot of that I made made uh, made present in the thesis as well, but nobody's going to read the thesis that's locked up in a library, right? So let's, let's be honest about it. So um, the I talked about a couple points. The first point mainly being that, by and large, the, the people I spoke with lacked genetic literacy, meaning to say that most people don't really understand how DNA tests work, like how the science works. They, they, you know, they don't have a good grasp of things that they should be cautious of, you know, what ethical concerns might exist, what data concerns, which obviously is related to ethical concerns, but like they don't, most people don't really have a firm understanding of that. You know, I'm talking in the people I spoke with, we're talking like 90%, you know, really, I would just make like sort of casual number where roughly like they were really not in the know on things that I would think they want to be in the know about. And so you, that's sort of like the, the foundation, I would say. And then within, with you know, building on top of that foundation, you have this environment where companies who are very skilled at advertising are in many ways, you know, putting out these ads that are prying on emotion, right? You're going to find sort of your lost history, you know, find your parents, whatever it may be. And that's very, you know, finding your, you know, maybe finding a parent or a sibling or something is, can happen. That's a very real thing that those tests can help you with. And I'm not trying to downplay that at all. Those that's, you know, could be a nice outcome, but it's not a nice outcome for everybody, which is also worth mentioning. But there's, you know, so in the genealogy space, maybe it's a little bit more of a level playing field, even though people still don't fully understand what they're opting into, but at least like, you know, you really can find relatives and it's kind of, it is effective at that. But in the health space, it becomes another thing completely. So unless it's really a single gene, you know, disorder, um, or condition or trait or whatever it may be, they're not that effective yet, these tests, right? So, you know, if you just think of like some of the problems, the sample size is small, you know, the sample size is not very diverse, then you have, you know, the, the challenge of 
picking out which scientific literature may be accurate or not, figuring out how are you going to sort of look at that literature, translate it into a tech product that weights that literature in such a way where you're then trying to make like a probabilistic recommendation to somebody, appreciating we haven't discovered like all the genes involved with most conditions, mm -hmm. even as something as simple as like, you know, you know, hair color say, or, you know, something like that. And as you get into you know, things like which food should you be eating, you know, or what exercise you should be doing or to diseases, um, you know, it becomes very much um, something that might be a data point that you want to consider, but I wouldn't base my life on at this point in time. Nonetheless, you have the advertising that's, you know, that's sort of drawing people in, getting them to use these tests, helping them to think that this is sort of going to solve problems for them. And I found that in my research. Many people did think that this was going to sort of be like, you know, really provide answers for them. And they take these tests, oftentimes, um, you know, somewhere just over 50% of people in my research don't read the the terms and conditions, essentially the contract that you're opting into, which means they're not really being provided informed consent. I mean, they have the opportunity to read all of that, but just given the way that tech products are designed, you probably know it yourself, you just click I agree, right? So they're going in without really a good informed consent process, even if you make the argument that they have the option to read all of that. Yes, they do, but it's like legal jargon, right? It's mm -hmm. common science and it's legal jargon. So again, people just aren't really going to grasp it. And then on the backside, you have all these questions about like, what is happening with the data? So, you know, while the big platforms are making you opt into the research, again, like, you know, you can design things in tech where opting in sort of happens very fluidly. People don't even realize it, depending on how you design the interface. But then you also have people who are taking their data and uploading it to other tools, such as like a tool like GenMatch which is the tool that was used to find the Golden State serial killer, where you know, at this point in time, the vast majority of, uh, of people of European descent in the States can be identified just because of how many people have already uploaded their data. Right? So that basically means that even if you don't take a test, if you're of European descent in the United States, your privacy is already gone in many ways, right? It can sort of be pieced together um, you know, with people who are skilled researchers using a tool like that. And so there's a lot of issues here about, you know, who owns that data related to that point, like who owns the data, how should that data be used? Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff to figure out. And in basically a lot of the way that the, that service, those services are pitched is you give us your data today and over time, we're going to continue to give you insights, you know, but what, what are you giving up now for really not much utility? That's kind of the question that I'm getting at in that talk. And there's people who are taking those Know, the quote unquote results that they're getting today and they're making relatively rash decisions. I reference a family who, you know, a family of women who told they had breast cancer only to, you know, two of them had double mastectomies only to learn later that the gene was reclassified and they may not have actually been as much risk as they thought. Right. And you can make the argument of like, you know, what's the role of a physician in that or a genetic counselor in that? Sure. Those are good arguments, but also if the data change, right, if we're now longer saying that that, that uh, they were at risk, but now they're not based on the scientific literature. Well, in, in that case, even the, the physician or the genetic counselor themselves likely would have, you know, just made the, they made the right recommendation at the time, but it turned out to not be true. So, you know, there's just a lot of stuff happening in that space that people need to be aware of and be cautious about. It's not to say you don't want to do one, 
but you just need to know what you're opting into. Definitely, and understanding that you know it is giving up a, a part of your privacy, no different than um, giving out you know personal information because it is it's your personal genetic information that literally makes you who you are, which just the whole idea. I really you know I hope to be able to as I've I'm advancing through my studies, learning about some of the forensic techniques that, you know, the use of DNA, the use of bite mark analysis that aren't fully, like we don't understand enough about to be able to have them be so accurate, especially like in the case of, you know, forensic application. And I hope to be able to do some more of my own research on how we can like formalize those processes um, in the forensic application. Um, and then, so one of the last things that I wanted to ask you was, um, what is some advice that you would give to someone trying to pursue a similar career or path as you? Because I think in general, it's always really interesting to get advice from people. I know it's like one of my favorite things about the podcast. It's just little nuggets of like inspiration or um, ideas that can kind of help our listeners, uh, you know, navigate through the many areas and sub-disciplines of anthropology. Sure. So, you know, I won't try to tackle like all of the disciplines, but as you asked oh, about course, mine, yeah. um, you know, the big thing is, is if you want to work in the business space, the, probably the big, the best thing you can do is try to get projects under your belt uh, and real world projects. So, you know, if internships, right, if you're an undergrad or grad, whatever it may be, do internships that will night will neatly align with what you want to do in the future. You know, like if you want to work in technology, then do an internship in that. Don't just take anything. And really try to get projects that you can show in a portfolio. Because if you want to work sort of in business, it, particularly in like user experience, portfolio is always going to be helpful. It's possible you could maybe find a way into the first job without it, but you're going to have to talk about like how you do this work. And so you're going to, having a portfolio is going to help you get there. The next thing is networking. I'm doing like informational interviews, like learn about the space, right? So just reach out to people on LinkedIn, try to set up you know, a quick call, learn about you know their role. And then related to networking is you know, different groups. So you know, people can check out businessanthro.com which is the business anthropology community. Uh, it's sort of just loosely affiliated. It's not like a society that's connected to the AAA or anything like that. It's just sort of a group of us who are in the space, who are trying to mentor others and put on project, put on like programming. So last night we had a virtual meetup where you could hear from, you know, some great practitioners in the field. So there's that, there's Epic People, um, you know, epicpeople.org or, you know, that Epic is, is a wonderful organization for people who are interested in working in tech. And then there's, you know, you could, of course, go to SFAA. There's some business stuff, but not as much at, um, you know, other communities. There's a little bit, but less so, valuable, but less so. So I would point to those two as the big one. And then listen to podcasts, but there's a lot of podcasts in the space. Um, you know, I'm sure you'll have many guests over time who, who might speak about some of this. And, uh, you know, listen to podcasts outside of anthropology, so business tech pol uh, podcasts, develop some skills in there. You know, there's always certifications on Coursera, but also really like, you know, try to upskill with some business tech design skills. They're very critical. And I would say design for almost everybody, even if you're not going into business, because at some point in time, you're going to be working somewhere, even if it's a pay, you know, even if it's academia and you're putting together a paper. And if you can visually communicate your ideas, it will go a long way.
That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for coming on the podcast today and I'll make sure to have everything linked below so you all can, so our listeners can check um, out Matt's info and uh, his various companies. And uh, do you, I was reading in your LinkedIn, do you, you guest host for this AnthroLife? I have probably eight or so times, maybe seven oh, okay. or so times. I haven't in a while, but yeah, for a period of time, yeah, I, I was doing that. And I'm actually starting to, uh, in fact, I, I recorded the first today. I'm starting an Anthro to UX podcast, really that's oh, great. focused on helping, you know, again, like sort of helping people get into that space. And it's bringing on practitioners who have made that you know, journey like I have to hear from them in their own words, how they did it, the struggles they had. And so the first one will be coming out either the first or second Monday in January. I got to pick exactly which, you know, which date, but it would be Rachel Fleming, who's, who's wonderful. She's written some great pieces on it. It would be really helpful. And then a second one that I'm firing up in just about a week is uh, anthropology in business. And it's going to be a little bit, um, probably the audience on that one is maybe slightly more mature than like say students or early career anthropologists who, and it will be broader, it will be organizational anthropology as much as UX and as much as people who are working in branding or working with AI, you know, ethicists, so on and so forth. So it will be a little bit broader. Um, but yeah, those, I think, will, will be a good resource for others as well. Definitely. I'm really happy to hear that those will be starting up. And congratulations. I'm sure they'll have, you know, immense success. Thanks. Appreciate it. So thanks, Gabby. It was a yeah. pleasure.